Welcome to Brain in a Vat. We are delighted to have back the guest that has brought in the most number of viewers for the show, the guest that you as our viewers have demanded that we have back, David Benatar. Many of you will have seen the videos that we've done on the second sexism, on the meaning of life, and today we're going to be talking about race-based affirmative action. David, would you like to start with the thought experiment? I'd like to start with two, please, if that's okay. The first case is a choice between the admission of two possible students to medical school. The first is a candidate with high marks, or what in the US would be called grades, who went to a privileged school and who has a parent who's a doctor. The second candidate has just slightly lower marks or grades, went to a somewhat deprived school, and whose parents did not finish high school. The question is, which of any of these candidates should be, well, which of these candidates should be admitted because you have to choose between them. I should say that where there's a racial differential between these two candidates, at least in the current South African context, it would usually be the case that the more privileged student, more privileged applicant is what we call white, and I'm using scare quotes around these racial terms, and the second candidate would be black, again, with scare quotes. But would one's judgment about which candidate ought to be favored change if the racial profiles of those two applicants were reversed. So that's the first case. The second case is in the South African National Defense Force, 25% of the personnel are currently women. Now I want to imagine an affirmative action policy aimed at 50% female representation among the military personnel. And this policy would involve two features. The one is conscription by lottery of enough women to bring up their participation levels to, to 50% of the total. And if the total force is limited to the current size, then you would have to exclude the relevant proportion of, of males so that you brought their representation level down to 50% and actually exclude certain people as a result. So those are my two examples, and I think they bring out a number of issues, and I hope we can discuss them. Very controversial. It really hits the nail on the controversy head. So I'm curious how people's positions on this are going to go, because let's talk about your first case. So in the first case, if what you care about is disadvantage and you insert the premise that the state should reward disadvantage being your socioeconomic circumstances, where you come from, what you were raised with, your family's income level being lower than the norm or lower than your competitors, then you should promote the student that is that comes from disadvantage regardless of their race. But if what you care about is race, then you're going to negate disadvantage as the reason why you would promote or choose one job applicant over the other. But often people use disadvantage as the reason why one race should be chosen over the other. So the reason why many believe that we should have racial affirmative action is because certain races have an economic or social disadvantage. And so that's why they should be boosted above, let's say, a white applicant. So when these two notions come into conflict, that's when you force a choice. That's what's a very clever thought experiment. I'm just curious, when you've presented this thought experiment, I don't know if you have, to like a, a group of people, let's say a group of first-year students, or maybe you've just presented it to various people over the years, what has the response been? Which way do they go? I haven't actually presented it. I've not taught affirmative action to my students because I've found it just too polarizing a topic and there are plenty of other topics to discuss. And I've not really presented it to people. So I can't tell you what the responses I've had. In any event, I'm not sure how scientific the responses I would be. So, but, I, but the example is an important one for me because 
I'm not an opponent of all affirmative action. I think that if somebody has been disadvantaged or treated unjustly in some way, and we can rectify that disadvantage, then I think we ought to do it. Now, when it comes to admissions, I think there's a limit to how much we can rectify prior disadvantage. So if you're speaking about somebody whose primary and secondary education has just been so disadvantaged that they would be unable to successfully complete a university degree, those are not students who are going to be admitted to university. Already, piles of those sorts of students in South Africa are not admitted to universities, even with very strong racial preference, because they don't meet the minimum bar. And so it's not that I don't think that the disadvantage dealt to those people ought to be rectified. I think it ought to be rectified. I just don't think that an admissions policy to university is the way to do that rectification. But a disadvantage would be relevant, I think, when we're speaking about a small band of people who can actually succeed in university, perhaps with appropriate interventions and assistance. But if you just looked at their grades for the matriculation, they would be slightly lower than applicants who had gone to privileged schools and had privileged backgrounds. And there, I think, even if we are interested in merit, we ought to look at the candidates who on paper are slightly weaker because they've managed to achieve results in the face of severe disadvantage. And that may well be an indicator of significant ability and significant merit. So I'm not opposed. In fact, I'm strongly in favor of rectifying injustice. And sometimes that will involve affirmative action policies, but that's on the basis of disadvantage. So for me, I would favor the second candidate over the first candidate in the case that I, that I outlined. But that would not change for me if the racial profiles were different from the norm. So if you had a particular applicant who was advantaged and who was black, and you had a particular applicant who was white who was somewhat disadvantaged, then I would still go with the disadvantage and the rectification of that rather than do this on the basis of the applicant's races. So I want to try drawing a couple of different distinctions. The one view is that we should compensate those that have suffered a disadvantage as individuals. So instead of using race as a kind of proxy for disadvantage, we look at the individual circumstance of that particular person, we treat them as who they are, and then we decide whether they should be given a preference when it comes to being admitted into university. Now, there's different ways in which you could be disadvantaged. The one might be that you've suffered some kind of discrimination, some kind of persecution, and that's what's major disadvantaged. The other one is that you just don't have that many resources. And the reasons why you have the resources could be varied. It might be that you chose to spend your resources on other things, that you were a prolific gambler. Maybe your parents are a prolific gambler and you had nothing to inherit. Those seem like different circumstances. And so I suppose one of the questions is whether we should treat those cases of people differently. The other one, the race-based affirmative action proponent wants to say, well, we could do this individualized exercise, but race is a sufficient proxy for disadvantage. So we can say that generally in South Africa, most poor people are black. Therefore, we don't need to look at the particular circumstances of an individual. We just have to look at the race of the candidates. And on that basis alone, we can say, well, if you're black, therefore you are disadvantaged and therefore you're deserving of compensation. And similar arguments might be made in America on such a basis. And I wonder how you respond to that line of argument. So let me take each of those lines of argument in turn. Let me begin with the first one. So I think the relevant distinction is not so much between what you've called persecution and discrimination and the absence of resources. So it's not, that's not the relevant distinction. I think it's really between whether 
you are responsible or not responsible for your disadvantage. And I think there are instances of disadvantage that may in the longer run be attributable to racial discrimination or to persecution or prejudice of some kind, but may not be immediately. Because it's beyond your control, I think there's nonetheless grounds for rectification. There's a history of injustice that renders you eligible for some kind of rectification. That's not true if you've squandered your resources and as a result don't have the resources to go to a school and, and prepare yourself well for university. In this case, it's slightly complicated because we're talking about parents rather than the children themselves. But let's gloss over that for now. So I think that's the relevant distinction. It's the one between whether you're responsible or not responsible for your situation. Now, when it comes to the second line of argument that you advanced, there's, of course, an initial plausibility to that view. But I think much of that disappears when we look a little more closely. Because when we look a little more closely, what we find is that the applicants for university positions, for university places of students, are really not from the bulk of the South African population. Because the bulk of the South African population are either not getting matriculation, or if they get matriculation, they're not getting the university pass that enables them to go to university. And much of that is explicable by prior discrimination. But they're out of the running. When we look at the applicants who are actually in the running, many of them have actually had relative advantage. That's why they're in the running. And so the profiles don't look quite as skewed when we look at it that way. But the second point I would make is that when we're looking at justice and the rectification of injustice, this is very much an individualized matter. We don't dish out punishments, for example, on the basis of your group characteristics. You don't say because you belong to a group that has done something that you are now liable for. If you've got some personal complicity in that, some personal responsibility for what your group has done, if there's a group culpability, that's another matter. But we don't distribute punishments. We don't say, for example, in a rape case, well, the perpetrator was a male, you're a male, and so we haven't found the actual male, we'll punish you, because some male has to pay for this crime. That's not how justice works. That's just the perpetuation of injustice. And I would say we have much better proxies than race for determining who is and isn't disadvantaged. And one of them that I proposed is just looking at the school you went to and the kind of school you went to. So in South Africa, we could have classifications of bands of schools of different levels of privilege, and that could be factored in some way into a formula. And given the noxious of racial classifications, I think there's an added reason here to use those more innocuous, more neutral and more relevant proxies. I've got three objections, David. So the first one is, it seems to me like in practice, it's going to be very difficult to standardize that formula. So very tough to specify exactly which schools you went to that would weigh up X number of points in this means test, exactly what the bands of your parents' income would have to be in order for you to gain X points in the system. And also, I presume it's going to be difficult to standardize this across industries. So you've got university admissions, you've got job applications. How do we standardize all of these different industries using exactly the same formula, even when it'd be very difficult to standardize that formula within one industry? So that's objection number one. Objection number two, you mentioned two reasons why you might want to hire the disadvantaged 
applicants, or rather admit the disadvantaged students to university, even if they were slightly worse in, in performance, their performance at school was slightly worse because you said they've had to, to do so much to get to that point. So even on merit, you might still want to hire them or you might want to admit them. Now, the question is, let's say those two come apart. So let's say you've got, on the one hand, a case where you've got a student that even if you were to take into account how difficult their life has been, their performance still wouldn't quite equal the advantageous student. They're just, the advantageous student is better, but just slightly better versus a second case where the disadvantaged student, their performance does slightly overshadow the student that was previously advantaged once you take into account the disadvantage. So I'm trying to tease out a situation where is it the merit that you think should be counted here? And it's just that the merit is greater given their circumstance of disadvantage, or is it the injustice that counts? Do we still do we still admit the disadvantaged student because of their disadvantage, even if taking to that into account, their disadvantage, their performance at university will be slightly worse? And then my third objection is: why is it the university that's responsible for rectifying injustice? So I could even agree with you that injustice has occurred and there is a responsibility for some institution or someone to rectify that injustice. The particular university that's weighing up admissions might say, but hold on, why is that our responsibility? Is it not the responsibility, for example, of the state? Thank you. Let me try to remember each of those points and respond in turn. So is the standardization practical? I think it is. First of all, if you look at the formulae that universities, at least in South Africa, currently use, they're rather complicated because they're wanting to engineer a particular outcome, particular racial outcome, I should say, and sometimes a gender outcome. And so I think that the formula that would be involved here would be no more complicated. Now, would it be precise? In other words, would it do justice in every single case? Well, probably not, but no policy is going to do that. Every policy is going to have to have some rough edges. Policies are not made specifically for individual cases, although they can sometimes allow some exceptions. So I think that we could actually do quite a good job there, certainly with the university admissions. Now, when you, took, when you look at other factors like hiring in particular positions, those are typically much more individualized decisions, at least in South Africa. I know that I think in the US, they often look at individual candidates in great detail for admission to university, but the system in South Africa with admissions is much more generic. It's much less focused on the individual and more on the points that they get for various, various attributes. When you look at hiring decisions, those are much more individualized. And that now gives you scope for making more individualized judgments when you try to weigh up things. And I'm actually less sympathetic to, let's say, in university hiring to the use of affirmative action there, because I do think that by the time somebody comes to be hired, they've gone through a doctoral degree, hopefully, that's not always true in South Africa, but they've gone through a doctoral degree and all the prior learning, and they're now ready to be hired in a university. If the prior disadvantage hasn't been ironed out by that point, if they're not as strong as the other candidates, what your primary interest should really be is how strong a candidate can I get? And so I'm going to be somewhat less sympathetic there. But if there were specifics in a case which indicated that somebody had been disadvantaged and 
if they're hired in this position, they could be every bit as good, if not better than somebody else, then again, I would be sympathetic to that. So that's your first point. The second point is really that you raise is really related to my answer now to the first. So you're saying these overcome a great deal of disadvantage and they've got to a certain point, but they're not quite at the level of the person that they're competing against. I think in many cases, the merit question and the injustice question are going to work together here because the fact that this person is the victim of prior discrimination and that they've been able to overcome it to the extent that they have provides you with a kind of double reason to, to favor them. Now, there's going to be a conceptual question about what happens when those two things come apart. And I'm happy for us to have some disagreements about that. I'm not sure we should focus on those disagreements now because that's not where the heart of the disagreement about affirmative action lies. So if I get everybody on board with me on the, on the general principles, we can then start haggling about the details. But I don't see much point in haggling about the details until we've got that generalized agreement. And then your third question was about whether it's really the universities that need to rectify injustice. And I think my answer to that is implicit in something that I said before. And that is that universities would play some role in rectifying injustice. So if you're dealing with candidates who've had a disadvantaged background through no fault of their own, and they've overcome that to a significant degree, and with university support and help, they could do just as well, if not better, than the people, the applicants against whom they're competing, then I think there is a role here for the university to play in rectifying the prior injustice, not to just look narrowly at the grades, but to look more generally at what somebody had to do to get those grades. And by the way, here I would look at other things as well. I mean, maybe that somebody's ill health is a relevant consideration. So it's not just injustices. There may be other adversities that somebody's faced. What I would say is that it's lots of areas in which the university can't rectify the injustice. If you're dealing with 12 years of primary and secondary education, where the state has utterly failed pupils in those schools, and they just don't have the wherewithal to succeed in universities, there's no way that universities can make up that shortfall. There's no way that they can try to rectify that past injustice, and they shouldn't be in the business of trying to do so. It seems that you could have different kinds of affirmative action policies. So you could have a system where you say we've got two candidates and there's a tiebreaker. So if they're equal on merits, well, then the candidate who suffered an injustice, we push it in their direction. The other one is that you have some kinds of set-asides where you say there must be X number of candidates who come from this disadvantaged background, however that's made up. And the other one might be that you have a weighting system, a preference system, where you say, okay, well, you get extra points based on the prior disadvantage. And it seems like you could pick between those systems. I wonder if you think all of those things are tolerable or if some of them end up perpetuating a further injustice. As you pointed out, there is a competition between candidates. There are only so many places available at a university, which means that someone who deserves it on the grounds of merit will not get a space because we have set aside a space or given a preference to someone else on the grounds of the prior injustice. Under circumstances where it's not the university that has performed that injustice against someone, it's not that they had kept them out, that they had a prior history of excluding those people. It's that there's been other sort of social harms. And so the person who spent an enormous amount of time studying and being good and applying to one of these excellent schools, there's an injustice in them being removed so that we can put in someone else who happens to have had a difficult prior background. 
Right, there are a few issues that you're raising there. The one is, again, I think the issue that Jason was raising about the responsibility of the university in all of this. I'm speaking mainly here with reference to public universities, because that's what we have in South Africa. There may be something slightly different when we're speaking about private universities. But I think it is reasonable to say that the university as a public institution would need to play a role in the rectification of public injustices. Not more than the role it should play, but that there's some role for it to play there. So that's my answer to that point. You also spoke about different degrees of preference. Now, I think here we need to distinguish between different degrees of preference with regard to non-racial, non-gen issues, let's say just purely of disadvantage. And then the question to which you favor people on the grounds of race or sex or some other kind of demographic characteristic of that kind. And we may get different answers depending on which of those we look at, but perhaps for our purposes, it's best if I focus on the extent, if any, to which you favor people on the basis of their race or their sex. And here we need to recognize, as you say, that there can be just a tiebreaker value. So if you've got two candidates who are equal in all respects, but the one is from, let's say, an underrepresented racial category and the other's not, that you would then break the tie by means of appointing the person who comes from the underrepresented racial group. And then you can have a whole degree of, of weightings. So you just give a little weight or more weight or much more weight to the racial demographic or to the gender demographic. And then at the very extreme end, you would have quotas or exclusions where you're just not considering certain people on the basis of their race. Uh, there's a kind of absolute bar to, to uh, appointing them. And I think that the problems with racial preference just become stronger and stronger as the preference increases. And I should note that in South Africa, the preferences, the racial preferences in particular, and sometimes the gender preferences are enormous. I think listeners and viewers who are, let's say, coming from North America and who are familiar with affirmative action in that context need to recognize that is not what we're speaking about. It's not, for example, with university admissions that Race is just one of many factors that are considered. They're going to be cases, well, I suppose less with admissions, more with appointments, where race is almost a decisive characteristic. You can be excluded on the grounds of, of your race. You're not even you're not even considered in the in the hiring process. So very strong preferences, and I think that all the difficulties that are, there are with race-based and sex-based affirmative action just increase as the weight of those preferences increases. So I, as the resident anarchist, I just want to point out some things that I've let slide that aren't let slide in principle. So you talked about the distinction between someone whose disadvantage is a result of something they did, so it's their responsibility, versus disadvantage that's not their responsibility. But then you talk throughout not just about disadvantage and inequality, but injustice. So it sounds to me like you feel that any disadvantage that I have as a university applicant that's not my responsibility must be as a result of injustice. No. That's strange to me. So I just want to ask you, what kinds of disadvantage would count as unjust versus just? And how would a university admissions board know that in any particular case? So how would they look at a student and say, 
this student's level of disadvantage is as a result of injustice? Well, I think that for there to be an injustice, there has to be significant human or human institutional roles. So if you're born with a cognitive impairment, that means that you're never going to be able to go to school or go to university. There's something in a sort of metaphorical sense of unjust about that. And antinatalists like me might put that their injustice partly at the foot of the procreators. But in another sense, it's really just the natural lottery. It's just that's the raw deal that nature has dealt you. And it's not an injustice per se. How we then treat you as a result and how the social institutions then treat you as a result of that, that may now introduce elements of injustice. So if you're killed by some freak of nature, we, don't, we wouldn't ordinarily call that an injustice unless there was some human complicity involved in that. Uh, but if there's some, some human or institutional role that has caused this and there's something unfair about the stru those structures that have brought about this disadvantage, then I think that we would pin this at the door of, of disadvantage for some kind of discrimination or injustice. But then it now sounds like you're going to include everyone, right? Well, no, because I think, again, because the policies have to be, have to apply to large numbers of cases, they're going to vary from place to place. So if you look at South Africa and you look at the appalling schooling for that, that most pupils have access to, that is a product of injustice. Now, some of that injustice goes back to the apartheid era. A lot of it goes back to the apartheid era. And some of it, quite frankly, is attributable to the post-apartheid government not doing what it should have done to rectify the schooling system. But either way, there are injustices that have been done to people. It's pretty obvious that the, dis the disparities that we have in educational levels are heavily attributable to the schools that people have access to. And I think there's something that can be done about that by universities in an effective way that they should do that. But I, I just want to push this further, David. So, so, so let's remove ourselves from the South African situation, or at least let's no longer talk about public schools. Let's say there's mm. two private school students mm. and the one has much wealthier parents than the other. That wealthier parent is able to afford extra lessons and tutoring for their child. And as a result, that child obtains high marks in the trick. Mm. And now they're trying to get into university mm. and these two children are competing for a spot. Now, it doesn't seem to me like there's injustice at play here, but it seems to me like there's inequality at play. And if you'll agree with me on that, and if you agree that kind of inequality shouldn't count towards placing your foot on, on the weight of weighting one candidate over the other, so there's no relevant sense of injustice here that counts, then we might say, well, if even the private parent, the private school parent couldn't possibly have boosted their child enough to compete with the wealthier parent's child then really could the state be expected to do so as well? And really has an injustice been done necessarily? Look, it's hard to draw the line between mere inequality and injustice because the further you go upstream and look at all the background conditions, the more likely you to find some kind of injustice in the past that explains it, but not always. I'm just not sure how practical this worry is because no policy is going to be able to do justice to every last individual. It can't be 
that finely tuned that it's going to pick up the exact dessert levels and the exact degree of favoring that every individual is really entitled to. And so it's really about more fair or less fair policies. Policies that do a better job or a worse job in terms of fairness at selecting candidates. And my view is that using things like race and sex is not a fair way to rectify an injustice because the injustice doesn't lie in the mere racial identity, as it were. It lies in something for which the race, racial identity might sometimes be a proxy. But what's really relevant is have you been disadvantaged in a way that you're not responsible for? And if you have, and you're actually all things considered as good or better than somebody against whom you're competing, and given that there's this injustice, we, we ought to favor you. But the universities won't be able to do that in every last case. So I'm willing to grant that, but I think that's too much to ask of a policy. So if I think about the second thought experiment that you started with, there's this other justification for affirmative action, which isn't based about backward-looking considerations like redressing the wrongs of the past. It's based on the virtue of diversity. So the idea that we should have a demographic representativity or that we should have a variety of people on the grounds of their sex or their race or their religion in a social institution, that would be good. And I wonder if you think those sorts of arguments work for affirmative action. And also, if you could elaborate on this something you spoke about earlier, that there's something poisonous about race-based policies because they require some kind of classification. That if you're going to say we need X number of black people and X number of white people, you have to work out how you determine that. And if I think about societies that have come up with those mechanisms, they tend to fill me with horror. So I think about my grandparents escaping Nazi Germany who were classified as being Jewish and how people's people classified as being Jewish if they were 1 16th Jewish regardless of what their actual religious practices were it determined how much blood you had in America there's a long history of discrimination on the grounds of these sort of dubious blood tests that if you had one drop of black blood in you then that's your the kind of life that you could lead in South Africa we had a huge range of arbitrary tests you would ask the person what sports they played, who their friends were, who their spouse was. Your race could change based on who you married. There were pencil tests in the hair, all that sort of stuff that people found immensely repugnant. And it seems that if you want to have a, a, any kind of policy that takes race into account, you have to employ these stratagems in some kind of way. And there's something, to my mind, deeply sickening about having these things in place. Okay, so you've raised two issues, and I think we need to discuss each of these and probably separately. The first thing you've done is you've said there's not just one rationale for race-based and sex-based affirmative action. It's not just the rectification of injustice. There's also the diversity argument, and you're quite correct. That is a different kind of argument. I should note that the diversity argument often creeps into a representation argument, but they're not equivalent. So let me say what they are. Diversity is, as the word suggests, just to have people of different kinds. And somebody might say, well, what we need to have is not all people of a single race or people of one sex. We need to have a diverse range of people. So that's the diversity criterion can be met if you just have some representation of people of different groups. In countries, let's say, like the US, where what they call minorities are minorities, diversity might amount in practice to representativity. 
is it might be that if you get, let's say, 10% African-Americans, you're going to fulfill a diversity requirement, but you're also going to have appointments, let's say, at the de demographic representativity in the broader population. In South Africa, of course, that breaks down because minorities are not what they are in places like the US or the UK. And so then what hap often happens is the diversity argument morphs into a representation argument, whereby you say, well, if 90% 90, 90 of the South African population is black in the broad sense of the word, then it should be that 90% of your professors in the university should be black in the same sense, irrespective of what the distribution, let's say, of the PhDs is in, in that country. So you get diversity then morphing into representation. And we need to keep those two, in, those two categories separate, I think, when we think about them. The example I gave was one that's really based on representation, not on diversity. Because if you've got 25% females in the South African National Defense Force, you've got diversity. You've got males and you've got females, and you've got quite a lot of females, but you don't have them represented to their degree of representation in the population. And so what that second example is meant to draw out is a challenge to those who think that we ought to get representativity because they want it in a whole array of areas. And my sense is if they want it in those areas, then shouldn't they want it in this area too? So that's the distinction between the diversity and the representativity argument. Now, I don't think that either of those arguments is any more successful than the argument about rectifying injustice as a grounds for justifying race-based or sex-based affirmative action. It's not that I am immune to the sensitivities or ignore the sensitivities about, let's say, a class that doesn't have a diverse group of people in it. I realize there's something very uncomfortable about that. There's something odd. It, it is very often, more often than not, going to indicate something odd in the society if you don't have that kind of diversity and if you don't have something like proportionality or something approaching pro proportionality. But when you come to proportionality, of course, there can be lots of other explanations. Very often, just people's choices can lead different groups in different directions at different times. And so proportionality is not always as worrying as the complete absence of diversity. But the question is whether the race-based preferences or the sex-based preferences are the best means to address a lack of diversity. Obviously, there's got to be some kind of root cause to the lack of diversity. And it seems to me that is what one would, one would be better advised to address. So why is it, for example, that you have relatively few female engineering students? Is, it, is engineering somehow not an attractive career for females in South Africa in 2022? Uh, if it's a, just a personal choice on their part, well, then maybe it's just that's the way it falls out and we ought to do nothing about it. If, on the other hand, we find that girls are being fed the message that they can't be engineers and this is not a line of inquiry for them, not a career track for them, then I think what we need to do is upstream, try to address that so that we open up opportunities. You have engineering fairs and activities for, for girls' schools to come and visit the engineering faculty and learn about these sorts of things. That, that would seem to me to be a more reasonable a, a, approach to that kind of problem. Think about a reverse. Think about 
the paucity of males in the nursing profession or in pre-primary teaching, is that a product of discrimination? Is it a product of choice? Well, my sense is it's a bit of both. In part, males are discouraged from going into that line of work. They're told that this is women's work. And so it's a less common area for them to go into. But it may also be that males are just choosing not to enter into those professions. And to the extent that the latter is true, we just need to, we just need to live with it. So I wonder if there's not a contradiction in your two approaches or your approaches to each of these problems, to the backward consideration arguments versus the forward consideration arguments. So you talk about how you should really fix the upstream causes, the root causes, rather than fix it through affirmative action later when it comes to the problem of representation. So we're talking about female engineering students. There's few of them who apply. So you don't just shove them in there, even if they into the course, you don't just push them ahead of male students purely because there's a lack of representativity, because you should rather fix the upstream effects. You should rather try to find a way to change the messaging to young girls that being an engineer is actually a great thing to do. And I like that. I like that response. But you had the opposite approach previously. So your approach previously was, we're not going to fix the upstream causes of educational injustice, because that's hopeless. The state is terrible at that. Instead, what we should do is fix it at the university level, at least partly. So at least partly, the university is responsible for fixing it at that level. So it sounds like you've got two very different approaches here. So in the case of representativity problems, you want to fix it earlier. But in the case of injustice resulting in in students' marks being lower, you want to fix that problem later in the process at university admission level. No, I don't think it's a contradiction of my position at all. So there, there are two questions here. First of all, I think if we can prevent an injustice upfront, in other words, if we can prevent now injustices that will manifest much later, we ought to do that. Who the we is an open question, and I'll come back to that in a while. But preventing injustice would be would be important for me on either argument, in other words, preventing the injustice uh, so that you don't need to then rectify it in, in your admissions on a rectificatory argument, but also so that you don't need to invoke a diversity argument in order to do that, because you would have tried to uh, address the reasons for the absence of diversity or, or representativity earlier on. Now, once you already have those facts in the past, now the question is, what can you do about them? And what I'm saying is the university, a university's ought to play some role in attending to those issues, but their role is limited. So I've already spoken at some length about where they play some role in rectifying a prior injustice. And then when it comes to diversity, I'm not really sure they have a problem in that regard because we're on the diversity story, because you can have some female engineering students and you can have some male nurses and you're going to have, at least in South Africa, some representation of, of black students in the university because we've got a growing middle class and growing access to, to religious schools. And so on the diversity argument, it's not clear you need to do anything. Now, on the representativity argument, so you need representation. Well, then the question is, what degree of representation is reasonable? And here, I think it's complicated because... The absence of representativity isn't always explicable or isn't totally explicable by upstream problems. It may just be explicable by choices that people make. 
We know that very often, first time student entering into university and they're the first people going to university in their family, they're going to have certain career ambitions and their children may have different kinds of career ambitions. And these are not to rectify these choices that they're making. You don't need to control them and social engineer these kinds of choices. These are just choices that are being made. Uh, we're getting a large number of applicants for, for female applicants for medical school and females now far outstrip males in the medical classes, the MBCHB classes. And that is significantly attributable to the fact that more women are wanting to go into medicine and fewer men are going in. So ought you to be rectifying that? Everybody who thinks that you need to have representation ought to be doing something about that. But otherwise, you were going to say, this is just a matter of choice. And maybe if the number of males falls too low, we need to do something about it. Because actually, in the case of medicine, there is a reason to have people of different sexes, because patients might be comfortable with people of different sexes. So there's one area where your sex may actually be relevant to, to your, your doing the job. But you're not going to expect precise 50-50 distribution if choices are moving in different directions. I think your point is well taken that there are reasons why people of certain social groups choose not to, for example, apply to engineering or to medicine or to become prison officers or to become mm. garbage collectors. Or There are reasons other than injustice or faulty messaging in society for differences in, in representation in many cases. But you also say that in some cases, it is as a result of some sort of fault in society. Mm. Not in all cases, granted, mm. but at least in some cases. So you gave the engineering case. I'm not pinning you to the engineering case. I'm not saying let's agree that is the case, but just hypothetically speaking, suppose mm. the reason why girls don't ultimately become engineers is not because of any sort of choice. It's purely because it's this faulty messaging to young girls mm. about what engineering means, at least in that kind of case. Because the other cases where it's not faulty reasoning, but just some sort of choice that's mm. operating here, those are the easy cases for you. The difficult case is the engineering case by hypothesis, where mm. there is a fault in society. And the person pushing for representation could say, if we were to push a whole lot of girls into this course, it would ultimately change that messaging. So there'd be more female engineers later on, once they're qualified, that will change the discussion about whether girls should become engineers. And so in order to fix this social injustice, the university has got some sort of obligation to, to adjust the numbers. This is where I think the strength of the preference counts. So, and let's not take the case of engineering here, because this is just too easy for the ordinary fault lines around affirmative action to manifest themselves. So let's think about a case where you've got an underrepresentation of males. So think about an underrepresentation of males among nurses. Now, uh, let's imagine you think, well, we need more males here, in part so that it sends a message to boys that they can become nurses, but also in part so that we can meet the needs of male patients who would prefer to have a, a male nurse. And so you said, we may give some preference on that basis. Let's imagine somebody went and said that. The question then is, how much preference would you be willing to give? Let's imagine what you started doing is you started admitting to nursing school males who were just thoroughly underqualified to enter nursing school because the males that were actually qualified because of their choices were applying to other areas. And the ones that you've now encouraged through a mechanism of favoring are now applying for nursing school, but they're going to make very bad nurses. 
So let's imagine you stick ahead with this policy of yours and you start admitting all of them and they become nurses. And on average, I'm not saying every last male nurse by any means, but let's say on average, because you've admitted and you've qualified people who are not up to, are not up to scratch, are going to be much worse than female nurses. What message does that send? That sends the, that's going to reinforce stereotypes about males not being very good nurses. So this is where I think we need some nuance in terms of the level of the, of the favoring that we give. So partly the question is, is your race or your sex relevant to the job that you're going to do? And then the question is, if there may be some grounds for using that, but we need to be very careful about that. And then if so, what weight do we give it? And the more weight you give, the more trouble you get into. So it seems that diversity is a useful word because it can mean something different. So if I think about if you're setting up a team of players or a, an intellectual group, you might want a diversity of different attributes in there that have to do with skills or interests or political beliefs that when people clash the different notions against each other or are able to work with the, the different styles that people have, you might wind up with something that's more productive, better, more innovative. It's not clear to me that things like the amount of melanin you have in your skin or the shape of your sex organs plays any kind of role in gaining a benefit there. The kinds of cases that you've given where it might matter seem very narrow. And I think those are legitimate cases. I can imagine someone saying, look, I really do have a strong preference in the medical situation that my gynecologist is a woman or that my proctologist is a man, something along those lines, buy that. But it seems in most cases, whether your accountant or your lawyer is a man or woman, whether they're black or white is rather irrelevant. What you might want is the diversity in terms of the raw skills that they have. And that when you're working out who should be in a particular philosophy class, that you want people from different traditions there so that they can clash their ideas against each other. And you might want that with your lecturers that they come from different ways of thinking. Isn't there this weasel word where everybody accepts, well, diversity of these other kinds of attributes is good, and then actually when it's implemented, it just relates to these surface level things? I think you're quite right. It's a point that I and others have made on many occasions that one very important form, perhaps the most important form of diversity in universities at least, but further afield as well, is intellectual diversity. And there's almost no attention whatsoever given to that in, in universities. It's a great emphasis on conformity rather than diversity. University as opposed to diversity. University in a particular, in a different sense than, than the ordinary one. And uh, so I think that does speak to a kind of dishonesty about the commitment to the principle of diversity, that there's not a real commitment there, that it's more like an excuse. And I've also pointed to other e evidence that it's an excuse. And this includes a lot of the allied health professions. So if you look at the audiologists and the physiotherapists and these other allied health professions around South Africa, at least, I'm sure it's true in many other parts of the world, we're speaking about overwhelmingly female classes. And now if you were really interested in diversity as representativity, if you understood, if you wanted that, then you would be complaining about the lack of proportionality in these kinds of classes. And they're not, they're silent. And they're silent even when it's pointed out to them. And what that shows me again is that there's not an intellectually honest commitment to the principle of diversity. It's, a, it's an excuse for what they want. You get the same sort of argument with, let's say, wanting to get black doctors from rural areas because they're more likely to go back 
to rural areas. That's the claim to practice. And I think if there were evidence that getting students from a rural background meant that they would really go back to rural areas and serve in underserved areas, I think that would be a good factor to consider in, in admissions to medical school. But then you need to think about all the other implications. Let's imagine it turned out. This research, as far as I know, is not done in universities because of their political leanings. But let's imagine it find, you found out that female graduates, on average, spent fewer career hours in their medical profession than males did. Then you might say, well, look, we're going to get more social value for our educational resources by hiring, by getting fewer females into the medical profession, into the medical class. Now, again, I'm not recommending this, but what I'm saying is if you're going to use a particular rationale for getting in people that you want to get in through the back door, then you need to be committed to what the logical implications of that kind of rationale are in other cases. And when you're not, that suggests to me that you're using excuses rather than principles. And Jerome Carabell, who wrote this important book called The Chosen on the history of admissions in Ivy League universities in, in, in America, uh, has spoken about the iron rule of admissions. And that is that in, in, admissions policies are engineered in order to deliver the outcome that the universities want to have. So the outcome comes first, and then the policy is developed in order to engineer the outcome. And he calls it the iron rule because that seems to be true just everywhere, not just in the universities that he examined. And that speaks to a certain kind of intellectual dishonesty that worries me. And this is very much a live issue at the moment. So the Supreme Court in America is faced with the case about whether there should be race-based affirmative action policies. One of the cases they're looking at involves Harvard. And Harvard has claimed not to use race to determine its numbers, but it just so happens that in every year, there's a certain proportion of different racial groups that seems to be consistent over time. And the group that seems to suffer the most from this are Asian Americans. So here you have a group of people who had suffered firsthand discrimination at the hands of the state. So if you were a Japanese American born in America, but of Japanese descent during World War II, you're put into an internment camp. And that could have had a huge effect on you and the livelihoods of your children. And you have many people who immigrated to America looking for a better life, who worked incredibly hard so that their children could have the best opportunities possible for them. And so they get perfect SAT scores, they apply to Harvard, and they would get in if you had a merit-based system. But instead, as you say, you have the iron rule jigged against them. So you'll have systems in place that say, well, we haven't met this candidate, but we think that they're too shy to be at Harvard. And on that basis, we should cap their numbers. And of course, there's a history of the Ivy League trying to have quota systems to exclude certain people, notoriously anti-Semitic, to reduce the number of Jews. The view was that the Ivy League should be a protected space for people who have got good Christian heritages. And if we let too many Jews in, it'll ruin our institution and ruin our culture. And seemingly neutral factors were used to keep Jews out. So to say, well, actually, we should have a diversity of different regions of the country. It happens to be the case that many Jews live in New York. So preference points were awarded to those that come from Iowa and Wyoming because there aren't many Jews that live there. And you could pretend that you had a neutral factor and that you cared about some other objective, but actually the underlying reason was anti-Semitic. The other thing that I find quite distasteful about the proportionality idea is that if you happen to want to excel in a certain area and you really want to dedicate your life to something like medicine or law, why should it matter that other people that happen to look like you also have that interest 
and should be able to stop you from living out your dreams. But I think about what happens at my bar. So as an advocate, we have the Johannesburg Bar and we have an admissions policy for people that want to become advocates when they get trained. And during one of those years, they said we should have perfect proportionality in terms of the demographics of the country. 2% of people that live in South Africa are of Indian descent. So out of the 100 pupils that we take, there will be a cap of two Indians. That strikes me as incredibly unjust to all the other Indians that might want to join the profession. So what if other people that happen to look like them also want to join the profession? And that idea that you should be punished because other people happen to share these arbitrary attributes and have similar aspirations to you seems distasteful. I agree. And this brings us back to the point you were making earlier about the noxiousness of these categories of classifying people on the basis of their race or their ethnicity or their religion. Of course, it's not always noxious to do that. So sometimes it can be relevant, but there's a long history of discrimination along these kinds of grounds, and it can be very dangerous to do to. Of course, how serious that danger is can vary from society to society. So I don't think that it's equally dangerous everywhere. I do worry in South Africa that it is very dangerous. People think we had this very peaceful transition in 1994, which we did, and they think that this is now a lesson for the rest of the world. But if you look at the kind of racial animosity that is espoused by politicians on the left of the political spectrum, which is actually the bulk of the political spectrum in South Africa, I'm not talking about the liberal left, I'm talking about to the left of the liberals. There's a lot of racial animosity, a lot of racial hatred that is expressed. And to the extent that racial categories are perpetuated in South Africa, we may still see the racial violence that we didn't see before. We didn't see before to the degree that people feared, the kind of racial conflagration. So these are very dangerous categories to use in a place like South Africa. I'm not a prophet. I can't tell you exactly how this is going to play out. But I think that we can learn from history that using these kind of categories can be dangerous. And we can also learn from history that the kinds of circumstances that obtain in South Africa are exactly the kinds of ones which could be a powder keg for an explosion. And I would have liked to see South Africa move away from this extreme racial consciousness that was characteristic of the apartheid era. And one of the flags of the anti-apartheid people during the anti-apartheid during the apartheid period, the idea was that we were going to no longer speak about people's racial identities, to define them in those ways, to refer to them in those ways, the black guy, the white guy. And yet in post-apartheid South Africa, that's exactly what we find everybody's doing. And I think this is a very regrettable feature of post-apartheid South Africa. And I say that from the point of the national interest. It has not served the country well. The country is going through very difficult times. As you know, the power goes out for extended periods, hours each day. These are upstream. These can be attributed upstream to the kinds of cronyism and preferences and corruption, which comes from these kinds of affirmative action policies. And it's not doing anybody in South Africa any good. And it's harming most of all, at the moment, the people at the bottom of the path. I'm in agreement with you, David, but I just want to present one last argument that your objector mm. might provide. So they might say to you, look, the reason why certain South Africans in the past, the majority of South Africans in the past, were treated so poorly was because of the color of their skin. That was the reason. 
there wasn't a means test done back then during apartheid. Mm -hmm. The reason why they were treated so poorly and discriminated against is because they were of color. Is there not some justice to be had, even given all of your misgivings about mm -hmm. how empirically it really doesn't work out when you obsess about race and it generates a society that's divisive, that's full of corruption, that's used for poor ends. But given, let's just put all of that aside for a moment. Isn't there some justice that can be achieved by using race as a reason to give people a leg up, given that it was the reason to push them down, down in the past? I don't think so. And I don't think so because I think we've got much better ways of rectifying that injustice. And I've spoken quite a lot about that in, in the course of this interview. So what we do is we can bring about the rectification of injustice. We can, in South Africa, attain diversity pretty easily. Representation will be much more difficult to achieve the more you move up the scale to more skilled and qualified teams. But we can do all of that and we can at the same time avoid the preservation of dangerous racial categories. And if we can get the good without the bad, I think that's a far wise approach. Now, would it have been politically feasible? In other words, it's obviously a slower process, the one that I would speak about. So you probably wouldn't have had the universities transform their racial demographics quite as quickly as they have if you'd used a policy like mine, if you hadn't given the amount of weight to race as has been given. And I'm willing to acknowledge it. I'm willing to acknowledge it's a, it would have been a slow process. And I don't know whether it would have been politically feasible. It may not have been. But it may have been if there had been leadership from the ANC. For example, the government gave leadership on the capital punishment question. And although most of the population in South Africa supports capital punishment, the leadership of the ANC on that question and other parties as well enabled that progression in our society. Sometimes leaders can actually lead the population in an appropriate direction. I'm not saying that would have been possible now, but that's really just, is it possible, politically possible, to make the kinds of changes we need to do in order to avoid catastrophe from climate change. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but whether it is or isn't, we need to face up to the reality about what the policy is about. So if you've got high carbon emissions and they're causing massive damage that is going to wreak havoc for humanity and for other animals, I don't think we can shut up about that just because it may or may not be politically feasible. And similarly in South Africa, I have for lo a long time said that these policies would be extremely damaging to the country. I believe we are seeing outstanding evidence of this now, and I believe we will see much more evidence of this as time progresses. And so I think it's been a very regrettable route down which the leading party has, has taken us. So one of the things that I often find when I argue about the value of non-racialism in my litigation or in my, in my life generally is people say, no, we accept that we need to get to a non-racial future and that is our goal, but we have to use race-based policies to get there. And I've always said you can't fuck your way to virginity, that you can't use this terrible method to get to the utopia that you want, that the source of South Africa's problems is in our heightened racialism and that's why it cannot be a part of our solutions. The other thing that I try and remind people of as well is that black people are not interchangeable for each other that they are their own individuals. And when you have a policy that preferences race as opposed to something neutral like disadvantage, it's a very good way of advancing a particular set of individuals who either have the correct political affiliation or are part of a different old boys club. 
So they went to all the great private schools that the white kids went to, and they come from wealthy backgrounds. And you can pretend that you're reducing advantage by giving them preferences. And actually, all you're doing is locking out those poor black people who do need the leg up. And if you use something on the basis of disadvantage, those are the ones who would have been elevated as opposed to those that already have all this political capital or financial capital. And so there's a further injustice through the policy. Exactly. It's another point that I've made on multiple occasions. It's often presented as a toss-up between favoring a black candidate and favoring a white candidate, but it's very often favoring a black candidate with connections and advantage over a white candidate without connections or advantage. Can I push this crazy line one one step further, David? This is not my position, just for the record. I've been pushed into, because Mark really agrees with you on a lot of things, that I've got to be the bully in this conversation doing a bad job. But suppose in that circumstance, you've got the black applicant who is advantaged. You might say that had the black applicant not come from a family that was part of apartheid, they might have been even better off than they are now. So it does seem like that black applicant has been disadvantaged, has his family has risen above disadvantage, but he's gotten there despite apartheid, not because of it. You might say that even in the case where black applicants have do come from a directly advantaged background, it should still count in their favor that in the distant past, they faced disadvantage, at least their families did, their predecessors. The problem is that there are many people who, going back, could have had those disadvantages. And the question is just how great a role does that play and how much should we be factoring it into a public policy? So there are piles of people who are first-generation university students whose parents didn't complete school, certainly didn't go to university, who are not black, and yet who got into university and did very well. Because the crucial thing really is two things. The one is, what kind of school did you go to? And then the other is, what kind of home did you come from? Those are really going to be crucial to your ability to to perform and bring out the strengths in you. Now, is there some kind of historic residue, as it were, there may well be, but we're speaking about residues. And once we start speaking about residues, it's very hard for policies to speak in, to speak sensibly about those and to be able to differentiate different kinds of residues of different, of different origins. So I just don't, I don't think that argument has sufficient force to justify the policies of extreme preference that we're seeing in a place like South Africa. David, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's always an absolute pleasure having these conversations. And as I say, you're the guest who is the most watched by our viewers and I think the most loved by our viewers. And it's wonderful to talk about a topic like this that is such an important part of life in South Africa and in North America. And to do it in a way that's calm, polite, where we can disagree with each other and we can come up with very good alternatives to using race. It is wonderful. We've disagreed, but the problem is the people who really disagree with me don't want to engage in those kinds of sedate civil debates. And that's the great pity, because I think if we could have disagreement between people who really disagree and really disagree at a fundamental level, we'd be that much better off. But unfortunately, the societies, ours in particular, but others as well, have closed down to such an extent that's not really possible anymore.